good to see everybody. My name is Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors. And we are continuing this uh, morning in a series in Genesis chapters 12 through 36. We've titled this series, Rooted, the Foundations of Our Faith. Uh, and last week, Timothy preached a great sermon on Genesis chapter 15, that in the midst of our doubt and our hesitancy to trust, God draws us to faith in Himself and declares that He is trustworthy and reliable. And this morning we're going to look at Genesis chapter 17. But before I get into Genesis chapter 17, I I need to highlight Genesis chapter 16. Uh, Right after this incredible experience that Abram and Sarah have with God, in the midst of their doubt, God shows up and declares that He is trustworthy to be believed. They turn around 10 years later in Genesis chapter 16, still wrestling with doubt. Still wondering if God's going to provide a child. Still doubting if God is good to them. And and so they take matters into their own hands. And they make their own plan. And their plan is that they will use Hagar, Sarai's maidservant. Abram will sleep with her. They will have a child through her. And they do. But his name is Ishmael. And he is not the child of promise. The one who God said he would provide. Instead, he's a child conceived through their own conniving and their own planning. And then we turn now to chapter 17. That's where we pick up. Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14. And this is 13 years after Hagar and Ishmael. And so if you will stand, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word to us this morning. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, and he has broken my covenant. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would come now and speak to us, that you would... Give us minds to understand hearts that are gripped and changed and transformed, uh, that our will, our volition would be changed as we would walk out of this place different, living different, acting different, because 
you've spoken to us. Remove me, God, the one who gets to preach. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, may they be pleasing to you. And you, Lord Jesus, may we see you clearly this morning and experience you and understand you and be changed as a result of meeting with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, three weeks ago, roughly, the cover of Vanity Fair magazine made a big splash. And it's been the talk of media for the past month or so. Caitlyn Jenner donned the cover of Vanity Fair. Bruce Jenner, Olympic gold medalist in the decathlon, man among men, now turned Caitlyn Jenner. And the discussion has been, well, who is she? He. What, what is the true identity of Bruce or Caitlin? What name should we call her? Now, I don't want to talk specifically this morning about sexual or gender identity. But I do want to talk about our own wrestling with identity and the questioning of who am I? Though I realize, as I just used that as an intro, in a group this size... There are some of you wrestling with gender or sexual identity. And so I don't want you to feel like we as a church are avoiding that issue. We would actually love to talk more about that with you if that's where you are. And we will speak at length about it at another time. But this morning, I do want to address what I think every one of us wrestles with. And that's a true sense of identity. The question, who am I? Now, all of us walked into a, a room this sanctuary this morning, a group this large, and we're asking deep down at different times as we interact with people, am I liked or am I disliked? Am I approved of or am I disapproved of? And that's an identity question. Right? You interact with your family, and if it's strained at all, you wonder, am I loved or am I unloved? That's an identity question. You go to work and you wonder, am I a success at work or am I a disappointment at work? That's an identity question. So I would venture to say that our struggle with identity, who am I, is our deepest struggle. It is the struggle that goes on deep within all of our hearts, whether we voice it or not. And struggling with identity does not disappear once we become a Christian. Right? Becoming a Christian, once we believe Christ, and we believe the gospel, the gospel declares that we are now loved and approved by God, forgiven, accepted, liked by God. It's what happens for Abram in Genesis chapter 15. Abram believed God. He was counted, declared, loved, forgiven, righteous, because Christ perfectly kept the law, sacrificially took the curse of the law, uh, of sacrifice took the curse of Abram's disobedience and our disobedience. And so when we trust Jesus, God declares us in Christ, which means we're forgiven, we're adopted, we're loved, that God really likes us. He likes you. That's the gospel. That's beautiful, isn't it? Can I get a response? Is that not good news this morning? That is, I don't know if there's anything more beautiful than knowing that if you trust Jesus, you are in Christ. Amen. That God sees Jesus when he looks at you. And the Father loves his Son with a love inexpressible. He is proud of his Son. He delights in his Son, which means he loves you and is proud of you and delights in you. 
But here's the reality. We may know these things to be true of us spiritually. Right? We may know God forgives me. He's faithful to me. He loves me. I know that I, I'm a son and daughter of a father who loves me greatly. But if we're honest, even if we are Christians, we still slip into this unbelief of our identity. And we don't live out of this identity because we are just like Abram, believing in Jesus, trusting in the Lord, and then we can turn around and we connive and we control and we disobey God by taking our lives into our own hands, no longer trusting Him. And so we wrestle. Who am I? Am I the person that God has declared me to be because of faith in Jesus? Or am I the person who stumbles and falls and sins? Am I the forgiven saint or am I a failure? So you come to church this morning and if you were all to take a personal inventory, which I hope you did during our silent time of confession, of your own life, there was anger, lust, greed, hatred, Amen. jealousy, just to name a few. And then we hear this morning that we're forgiven and we're loved accepted because of Jesus. And so we wrestle, well, who am I really? Who am I? And so let's look this morning at our identity. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that our identity as Christians does not erase our humanity. Our identity as Christians does not erase our humanity. God declared Abram righteous, adopted, loved, forgiven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says that God declares those who put their trust in Jesus a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Abram is a new creation in Genesis chapter 15. And then he turns around, plays God by taking his own life into his own hands, thinking he has the control in chapter 16. Here's the first thing I want to say about it not erasing our humanity. When you become a Christian, it does not mean you will no longer sin. Now, you may go, that's, that's evident, right? If you've been a Christian longer than five minutes, you know that to be true, right? Once you become a Christian, doesn't mean you will no longer sin. But I know many who call themselves Christians, who preach and teach that once you become a Christian, you have the ability to never sin again. I was a campus minister with RUF at UNC Chapel Hill for five years, and there was the pit, the center of campus, and they would have pit preachers preaching and yelling what they said was the gospel. And what they would often say is that once you become a Christian, you should no longer live in darkness. They preached a perfect righteous living was possible now. And they would quote 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, which says there's no darkness with God. If we say we have fellowship with God, then while we walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, sometimes I would talk with them most of the time not because I would just get angry and annoyed at them as they were out there making what I believed was an embarrassment of Christianity and the gospel. I would get angry and annoyed. But when I was uh, able and patient enough, I would sit down and if they would talk with me, I would say, well, hey, you stop reading 1 John chapter 1. Keep, keep going, 1 John chapter 1 and read verse 8 which we often say here. And verse 8 says, if we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? What First John is saying is that we will sin as Christians. We'll stumble and we'll fall. 
But it should not be a continual walking in sin over and over and over, never confessing, never showing signs of repentance. So our identity as a Christian does not mean that our sinfulness is completely removed. Now that may, again, may be evident. But I want you to know that because many Christians who, I, who I've met with and counseled struggle with assurance of salvation. Am I really a Christian? Because they wrestle with sin. We will continue to wrestle though it shouldn't be without signs of repentance and faith. So our identity as a Christian does not remove our humanity. It means a second thing as well. It means that we remain emotional beings. Genesis chapter 16 is chock full of emotion. You should, you should read it later to that. Abram and Sarah, they're doubting God still <laughs> 10 years later. Taking matters into their own hands, they, and they go against God's will. And so now they're filled with guilt and shame. And then you have Hagar, who is a pawn in the hand of, of Sarah. And, uh, and she's kicked to the curb by Sarah, told, told to, to leave, get out of here. And so Hagar is lonely. She's hurting. She's sad. And so when you become a Christian and you believe in God's faithfulness in Jesus, it does not mean that you will no longer doubt or feel guilt or shame, or loneliness, or sadness, or hurt. And I believe that one way the church has hurt people is to make people feel like once you become a Christian, you almost have to become superhuman, kind of robot-like. I've said this before, but I used to use a diagram teaching about the Christian life, and I would draw a train. You know, it had fact, right? truth of who God is, faith, what we believe, feeling. Feelings, the caboose, it's kind of back there somewhere, right? And, and what I realized was communicating is stop feeling. Feelings aren't important. And that is so wrong. Feeling is so wrapped up in our humanity and in our faith. And I would venture to say that the more honest we can be, the more we know ourselves and how we feel, the more we can know who God really is. At the end of Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, Hagar the maidservant, the Egyptian maidservant, despised, kicked out. Hagar calls God, and God comes after Hagar, calls God by a new name. And she calls God, you are a God of seeing. You are a God who sees. See, God sees Hagar's hurt and loneliness and sadness. And so she calls God, you are a God who sees. And it's an intimate moment. An intimate picture of relationship with God, that God sees her and God sees Abram and Sarah, their doubt, their guilt, and their shame. Many of you know that Rachel and I love the TV show Parenthood. Uh, in season two, I think it was season two, Zeke and Camille, who are the grandparents, uh, they're in marriage counseling, right? And they're like 60s. And when they have a dispute or an argument, the counselor encourages Zeke, the grandfather, who's prone to try to fix everything, try to fix their marriage, he, he encourages Zeke to just pause. Instead of trying to fix it, pause, look at Camille, and say, I hear you, and I see you. I hear you, and I see you. So instead of trying to fix Camille, he needs to learn how to hear and see her. To see her hurt, her frustration, her pain, and that's what God says to us. I hear you and I see you. 
I see you when you lie down. I see you when you wake up. I see you when you sin. I see you when you're hurting. I see you when you're lonely and you're sad and you're disappointed. This is who God is. Our second thing about our identity as a Christian is that it's defined by covenant, not by experience. It's defined by covenant. Now, covenant is this big word that Timothy talked about last week, one of the major themes of the whole Bible, that God works in and through covenant to his people. In Genesis chapter 15, God inaugurated the covenant, brought Abram into covenant relationship with himself, and by faith, Abram placing his faith in God, God promising to Abram, I'm going to be faithful to you. And Abram had this incredible spiritual experience. Falls into a deep sleep, and this smoking fire pot, it's representative of God, passes through these torn carcasses, right? and God is declaring he's going to be faithful, and if he's not, let him take the curse like these torn carcasses. So ten years go by after Abram had this incredible experience. And they are still doubting. And they're still wanting to play God and take matters into their own hands. And so Abram's wondering, well, who am I? Am I chapter 15? Or am I chapter 16? So God institutes what he started in Genesis chapter 15. The covenant with Abram. Now, I know for some of you younger people, kind of millennial generation, there's a bucking of anything institutional. So I'll say the word institute, and you're like, no, 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 I don't want anything institutional. And you put institution together with Christianity, and you think that's exactly what's wrong with Christianity. Now, I'm not going to give a whole defense of why I think institutions are a good thing, but my hope is that you will see that the institution of God's covenant is an amazing thing. And the main reason is that the institution of God's covenant with his people is way more solid and trustworthy than our experiences. Now, I'm not saying that spiritual experiences are a bad thing. In fact, I'd say they're a good thing. And would hope and pray that all of you have had profound spiritual experiences. Could be in prayer, could be in God's word, in fellowship with other people, in service, or in mission. I hope and I pray that it's true for all of us, that we would experience God in profound ways. Experience is good. But there will be times in all of our lives, if you're a Christian, when you just feel like you're not experiencing God. It's been described as dry times. Maybe many of you have experienced it. Feels like your grandparents' closet, right? Your, your relationship with God just feels stale, feels motionless, nothing's moved for a long time, right? It's just, it's just dry. So we pray for experience, but we don't base our identity as Christians on our own experience because they can come and go. Instead, we base our identity upon covenant. And the first thing we see about covenant with God is that it always starts with God. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew is El Shaddai, Almighty. He is the one who is all-powerful, who is able. He is the king who rules over all. Abram is 99 years old. God's promised a child, and Abram's thinking, no way. There is no way we're going to have a child. And God, in this covenant relationship with Abram, starts by declaring who he is. I am God Almighty. I'm the king. I'm able. And I'm powerful. 
That's what it means to be in relationship with God. To be in covenant with Him is that we always start with who He is. The Almighty. The King. And we have to start here. That I, that you are a son and daughter of the King. Can you imagine what it would be like to be born a son and daughter of a king here on earth? <laughs> You're eating like filet mignon every day, right? Cape Cod, or Cod from Alaska, Alaska being flown in every day, right? It's your personal chef, personal gym, personal trainer, someone driving you around in some fancy car of your choice. Growing up, a son and daughter of a king would be amazing, <laughs> Because your dad could do whatever, whenever, and however for you. Abram and Sarah are old. Way old. Way past childbearing years. And God said he would give them a child of promise. And this seems impossible. It seems unreal and unimaginable. So God starts by declaring, I am the Almighty. I am the King. I have the power even when your world seems dim and your experiences seem bleak. Now, being a son or daughter of a king does not mean the king is always the sugar daddy providing everything the son or daughter wants, right? A good king gives to his children and his servants what they need, not always what they want. A good king leads with truth and goodness and justice and compassion and mercy, but not always giving what the people want, but definitely always giving what they need. A bad king would be like Santa Claus in the mall, right? where you think you can climb up on his lap, tell him what you want, and he will give it to you. Now that's sometimes what we think God should be, isn't it? That God should give me what I want, when I want. And if he doesn't, then I don't know if he's powerful. I don't know if he's able. I don't know if he's even good. But instead of demanding that God be a certain way, we have to start with who God is. He is the Almighty. He is the King. And then what comes next in covenant relationship with God is our response. Right after God states who he is in this covenant relationship, he tells Abram, walk before me and be blameless. The response should be blamelessness. Now the Hebrew there does not mean sinless. I've already addressed that. But instead it means a complete devotion. Complete surrender. Knowing he is a good king with all power. I surrender and I follow. This is Christian identity. That I am the son and daughter of a king. Living in complete devotion. Abram falls on his face before God. We must live completely devoted on our faces. Though we stumble, though we fall, we trust that he is strong and able. And we continue to follow him no matter what our experiences might be. I want to end by talking about the two indelible marks of this covenant relationship. There's two indelible marks. And here's the beauty of institution. God gives something permanent, remaining, indelible. Experiences, again, can come and go. Covenant relationship with God is permanent, and God gives two marks. The first, it's a new name. Abram is given a new name. Abram now becomes Abraham. 
And in the ancient Near East, to give someone a name meant to have power over that person. That's not far from today, is it? I mean, when we named our son Henry, there was a sense of ownership. He's our son. We named him. God is declaring ownership now of Abraham. And Abraham is also being uh, reminded that it's not just ownership, but a new name means a new destiny and a new mission. Abraham will now not just be the father of the nation. He picked up on this in in Genesis 17. But now he is the father of the multitude of the nations, the whole world. In our culture today, when we name someone, it's because we maybe have, it's a family name. It's a family name, we want to use the family name. Maybe it's a name we like. But in the ancient Near East, to give someone a name described their calling and their character. If you've ever read Revelation chapter 2, God says in Revelation 2, to the one who conquers, to the Christian, I will give some the hidden manna, and I will give him and her a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I could speak about that for a long time, but let me just say this. Christian, brother and sister, God has a new name for you. He owns you. He has a destiny, a new destiny, and a new mission in which He has called you to. And it will be our name and our identity and our calling for all of eternity. It is permanent. It will last. And so when you're wondering if you're a failure because of your sin, and you're, you're wrestling, well, well, who am I? No, you're God's. You're His. He will protect you. He loves you for all of eternity. A new name inscribed in heaven for you. Would you rest? Rest in that. Second indelible mark that God gives Abraham and gives to us is a new sign. Not just a new name, but a new sign. And the sign here is circumcision. Sign of the covenant is circumcision. Look at verse 10. It says, this is my covenant. Every male shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of the, of the foreskin. This is a sign between me and you. Now, two things about this sign, this permanent sign. It's bloody and it's to be remembered. It's bloody. Cutting off the foreskin of an eight-day-old child. That's a bloody experience. And God is stating that entrance into the covenant is always sacrificial. Always marked by blood. And it's to be remembered. See, God's promise to Abraham and to Sarah is that they would, be, they would have children as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so what does God do? He cuts the procreative organ. The very thing that produces children, God cuts. So that every time they attempt to have children, they will remember, God has cut me where it hurts. May I trust He is faithful. And he will do what he has promised he will do. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. What, a sign, what does a sign do? We have signs outside saying Christ Central Church, right? But it's not pointing just to this building. Christ Central Church points to us, the community. And us as the community worshiping God on this day. And being on mission Monday through Sunday. See, the sign points to something more than just this building. This building. 
Circumcision points beyond itself to El Shaddai, to the Almighty. Every time an infant was circumcised, it was like that old movie, Three Amigos. How many of you have seen Three Amigos? They're up on the wall. Look up here! Look up here! He's saying it. They're trying to get attention. Every time an infant was circumcised, it was God saying, look at me. Look at me. I am strong and I am able. Now, obviously, we don't practice circumcision as the sign of covenant today. We believe that the Bible teaches that baptism replaces circumcision as the sign. We, we see this in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 15. We just preached through Acts. Colossians chapter 2. Now, I realize that even here there are differing views on baptism, and that, that's okay. But I do think baptism is quite misunderstood in our culture. A few years ago, I was talking with a woman who told me she's not a Christian. And she did not believe in Jesus, but she had been baptized ten different times in ten different churches. Because she just wanted to enter and learn the culture of the community. That's a wrong view of baptism. Another prominent idea of baptism today is that baptism is my declaration. It's, it's about me making my statement of faith. So let me just say three quick things about baptism. The first thing, you should be baptized. You should be baptized. If you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, Jesus came preaching, repent, believe, and be baptized. If you're a believing parent, we would encourage you to baptize your children because we believe God promises to families. And it's not about your children's faith. It's about God's faithfulness to you and to your family. Second thing is baptism is not about you. It's not about you. Every male eight days old was circumcised. They were helpless. It was a sign pointing to God. And third, remember your baptism. Circumcision was bloody. It was the sacrificial offering of a procreative organ. And it was cut. And in baptism, we look to the Lord Jesus, who was cut, who shed his blood on the cross. And we're given the sign of baptism to remember the life and the death of Jesus. See, baptism, it's not like voting. Right? Voting, you get a sticker, I voted. It's not like going and having an incredible experience, like when you go to the Great Wall in China and you can buy a t-shirt, I, I went to the Great Wall. Baptism is not a sticker. Baptism is not a t-shirt. Baptism is a sacrament. And every time we see baptism, we remember our own baptism. And God's faithfulness to us and to our family to give us Jesus. The bloody sacrifice of Christ on our behalf to wash away and to cleanse our sin. That's our identity. We remember that we've been marked with this sign. And there's a true story about an elderly black South African woman who sat and listened carefully as a white South African man named Mr. Vanderbrook confessed. He confessed to the savage torture and murder of the woman's son and husband a few years earlier. She was actually forced to watch both her husband and her son be burned alive. And she was asked during the truth and reconciliation hearings how do you believe justice should be done to this man who has inflicted so much suffering on you? And she had every right, just like the families in Charleston had every right, to cry out, justice, death, 
and punishment. Every right. This white man had just murdered her whole family. Listen to how she replies. I want to go collect the dust of my husband's body. And I want to give him a decent burial. My husband and my son were my only family. I want Mr. Vanderbrook to become my son. I would like for him to come and visit me in the ghetto where I live and to spend two days a month with me so that I can love him with everything that I have left. And finally, I want Mr. Vanderbrook to know that I offer him forgiveness because Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband, she said. So I would like someone to lead me across this courtroom so I can embrace him and truly forgive him. And it's reported that Mr. Vanderbrook fainted. And everyone in the courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace. Brothers and sisters, when you walk into a room and you wonder, am I liked or am I disliked? When you enter into family that's difficult and you wonder, am I loved or am I unloved? And you go to work and you wonder, am I a success or am I a disappointment? And you struggle in your relationship with Jesus and you wonder, am I forgiven or am I a failure? Would you know that your identity is established by God? You are a son and a daughter of the King. It's adopted you. And He loves you and He forgives you and you have a new destiny and a new calling. Would you believe it? Would you live out of it? Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us to believe who you are, even in the times that are dry, in our experiences where it seems like you're distant. We thank you that you have given us permanent marks to remind us who we are in you, Lord Jesus. May we trust you and may we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.